Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn back to, yes, you guessed it, Proverbs chapter 28. And uh, <clears throat> you'll remember last week we uh, looked at verse 5, which um, without a doubt I think is one of the greatest verses in all the Bible uh, deals with man's lack of understanding with God. Last week I showed you a verse in the Minor Prophet that talked about the three controversies that God had, that there was, you know, no truth, no mercy, and no uh, knowledge of God in the land. And boy, that was true of Israel back in their day, and it's certainly true of us today. And a man does not understand God and his dealings with nations and his dealing with men. You know, the fact that an unsaved man, and times many a saved man, too. I mean, it used to be that saved men got it, but the majority of them don't get it either. They'll never grasp the concept of the judgment of God. You know, uh, in their own life, uh, you know, as God deals with unsaved people, you know, and, um, you know, as they deal with saved people through chastisement. And uh, we see it also with not only with just people, but down through history, we saw it with nations. Last week, I talked to you about, you know, the Bible built around seven judgments and how important they are to open up the scriptures for you along with the other, what we call the seven series coming through the whole Bible, which is God's systematic theology of really laying out the scriptures. And I showed you that the key, in fact, we talked about this Thursday night. Josh asked the question. It was a very good question. You know, we talked about the aspect of three judgments for you and for me as Christians. How that at the cross of Calvary, when Christ died, we were judged as sinners. When you make that decision to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, then God never again will he look at you as a sinner, nor will he deal with your sin as a sinner. We saw now that God deals with you as a son, and that'll be the book of 1 John. If we're faithful and just to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then I showed you that at the judgment seat of Christ that you'll not be judged <clears throat> as a sinner, you'll not be judged as a son, but rather you'll be judged as a servant. Judgment seat of Christ is going to be about motive. It's going to be about your attitude of heart, not what you did, why did you do it. It's not going to be about quantity, it's going to be about quality. And most people fail to understand these three things. A lot of God's people today have issues with their own salvation, how to work with God, the aspect between, you know, being a sinner, now that you're saved, you still sin, what do you do with that sin? All that is answered in God's simple systematic theology of the seven judgments. And then you move on to the other, the other four, which we've talked about last week. And without a doubt, a key to the aspect of God will be his judgment because he's a God of judgment. And most people don't want to think about that today. And, uh, you know, and the key to that will be understanding. Getting into the Bible and allowing somebody to show you, explain to you, or getting to the point in your life where you really understand that. You know, we live in a world that uh, believes about God much like they did in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Genesis 6 being the flood, Genesis 18 and 19 being the Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot. And the Bible tells us that in both cases, which again, there's two great keys. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Then he tells us, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the coming days of the coming of the Son of Man. Clearly showing the parallels that what happened in Genesis 6 and what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19 is going to happen again right before the Lord comes back. In both of those cases, you find God's eminent judgment. The flood, Genesis 6, and the fire and the hail coming down in Genesis 18 and 19 on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's incredible what you find. Somebody says, you know, what was it like back in those days? It was like it is today. And if you say, what is it like today? It was like what it was back there. You know, there's a couple of paces in Job that most people have no idea where, that even how to apply it or where it's at. But you talk about great insight into at least Genesis chapter 6. Back in Job chapter 22, uh, verses 15 and 17, uh, 15, 16 and 17, you have, that uh, whole chapter is a great chapter, but it's specifically... 
draws our attention to what it was like in Genesis chapter 6. What did they think? How did they relate to God? Did they have any knowledge of God at all? Were they like, they try to tell us that they were cavemen, Nathanderol men, Java men, people who have a very low understanding and had just come up from the primates. Uh, you know, what, what was their mindset? And of course, a lot of that is answered in verses that says, as it was in the days of Noah. Whatever we got going with God today is what they had going with God today. But yet, here's a passage that says in verse 15, How hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden, which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overthrown with a flood? There it is, Genesis chapter 6. Which said unto God... Well, then there was a knowledge of God. Then they understood that there was a God. They weren't as pagan as everybody thinks that they were. Let's see what they said to God. Which said unto God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do for them? You know, that's exactly where we are at today in this world. We say the exact same thing in everything. Politics, our, our schools, our society, our, our homes. Uh, that is exactly the same attitude that we have today that they had in Genesis chapter 6, uh, which said unto God, depart from us. People don't want anything to do with God today, not until there's some tragedy in their life, and then it's only a temporary thing. Nobody wants a real relationship with God. That's the way it was in Genesis chapter 6, yet obviously everybody knew about God. When you come over to chapter, back to chapter 21, uh, then you see another verse that deals with them. And, and in these chapters, it, it goes into great detail about how the kids don't really have any parents, that the parents are just letting them run wild, and how that they're all involved in everything that's out there. And this is, this is what it comes to when you get down there to verse 15, 16, and 17. It's a mess. But then over in chapter 21 in verse 15, you find them speaking up again. And here's what they say. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto Him? Now, if there was ever two verses that puts everything into a context of where we are at today and where the world is at today with Genesis chapter 6 back in the olden time, it's these two verses. It shows you exactly the mindset. And yet I look at verse 15 in chapter 21 and most people would just read it. It wouldn't really get out of it. But, you know, the trained eye, and we've talked about the trained eye many, many times. The trained eye would see something here that is quite, quite interesting. First of all, he starts out in verse 15, what is the Almighty? Notice he didn't say who is the Almighty. Remember I told you how our founding fathers came to the place where they recognized in the Declaration of Independence that God was the Creator? We've come from that place where God was creator in 1776 to the year 2000 and beyond where God is no longer a person. Now he's just an intelligent design. He's a neuter. He is a, he's your person of choice. He's your higher power. He can be, God can be whatever you, he, you want him to be. And so the question is, what is the Almighty? It isn't who is the Almighty, it is what is the Almighty? Because in Genesis chapter 6, they came to the same conclusion that people have come to today that God was not a real person. He was an influence. He was a power, a higher power. But he wasn't a person. He wasn't somebody that you could have a personal relationship with. So it's what is the Almighty? And they, they take the same position that we take today. What profit should we have if we pray unto him? And that's where the world is at today. That's where we are because the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And we've come from creator in 1776 up to the time we live where God is no longer a person. He's a what? They have to be, even the Christians, they, they want to bridge the evolutionists and all that. So they have their own little groups of Christians that want to teach creation, but they can't get away with God as a creator. So Christians make him creation by intelligent design, whatever that may be. You know, we think today that God is a God of love, never of God of judgment, that we all are God's children and uh, therefore, he is everybody's father. This is called the uh, universal love of God. And 
in the fatherhood of God in the liberal circles. And yet the Bible clearly tells us in John chapter 8, verse 44, that some people, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye shall do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and bode not in the truth, so there's no truth in him. It clearly shows that that's not correct. In a world that wants to make everybody God's child, make God everybody's father, the Bible stands in stark opposition to that, as the Bible always stands in stark opposition to where man wants to go outside the Scriptures. And clearly tells us that there's two spiritual families. And you were born into the devil's family, and if you don't get reborn again into God's family, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Therefore, because of all that, you know, uh, the, the war of good and evil that we talk about all the time, that people talk about, comes simply boils down to that based on everything, all the bad things are of the devil and all the good things come from God. And that is the charismatic mindset which is, floats over into all this neo-evangelical stuff today because the Bible says that man don't understand God's judgment. So they repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And we operate on the principle that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And that's a popular little quote that even Baptist preachers I've heard say that. It sounds neat, sounds spiritual. It's not too biblical. And that little phrase was never given by any man who ever entered into the gates of heaven any day in his life. That, that little quote came from Gandhi, who in a universal pragmatic way, you know, uh, is screaming his lungs out in hell if he didn't get saved. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Nowhere in the Bible is that not taught. In fact, the Bible teaches just the opposite. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The Bible says that if you're an unsaved man, that you're as good as in hell. As far as God is concerned, you're as good as in hell right now. Shut up, can't get out, going to burn for eternity unless something changes in your life. This idea of a universal fatherhood of God is absolutely out of the pit of hell. This idea that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner, you're wrong. You're wrong. God is a holy God. Well, back in the Old Testament, he couldn't even come through the camp until everything was taken out that was unholy to him. This is why he could not have a real relationship with people like he does in the church age, because he couldn't get into that mindset where, or, and deal with man in his sin, because the operation of God hadn't come in yet to take place, that God could indwell people and have a fellowship with them. And, and most of this really confuses most of the people. And this is where you get a lot of heresy. The book of Ephesians clearly tells us, especially in chapter 1, that you ask the question, well, then if, if that's true, if an unsaved man in God's mind is already in hell, and he is, if you're saved this morning, you're already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You do know that, don't you? Amen. If you're not saved this morning in God's mind, you're already seated in the lake of fire. I don't know if they have seats down there, but you're already in the lake of fire. And, of course, somebody asked the question, well, then, how, how, do, how does, if God can't have anything to do with an unsaved man because he's unclean, if Romans is true when it says that when we were unsaved, we were enmity against God, then how can ever a man get saved? And, of course, the answer to that is in Ephesians chapter 1, but nobody ever figures out. And then is the fact that the only way that God can love an unsaved man or an unsaved woman is to look at that unsaved person through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves them through what Christ did on the cross for them. And you know what? I don't know why people have such a hard time with that. You know there's going to be people in your life that are going to be hard to love. Do you know that? If you haven't figured that out yet or met one or two of them, you're in for a shock of your life at some point. (laughs) There's going to be people in your life, and sometimes they're saved people. Many times they're unsaved people. But there's going to be people that you just have absolutely no care for, I have an absolute disdain for that you wouldn't let them walk across your yard without sicking the dog on them. And yet you're commanded by the Bible that you've got to love them. Now, how do you do that? You know how you do it? Many times, the only way you can love somebody like that is to love them through Christ. That's how you do it. Well, oh, come on. If we can do that, then why can't God look at an unsaved person and love them through Christ? But that's the only way. Only way for you, only way for him. Ephesians chapter 1. God put everything he did and put it in Christ. And everything has to run through him. Now, the Calvinists could never get that because Calvinists can get anything. But that's the basic Bible of what you got. And it's an incredible concept. 
incredible concept. And you know that we, uh, we come to the place where uh, <clears throat> that we operate on these principles and they're not very good principles. And it, it, it shows you that as far as nations go, talk about individuals, but as far as nations go, uh, all nations are just a drop in the bucket compared to the nation of Israel from God's standpoint. Isaiah chapter 40 says so, verse 15. He says these nations are a drop in the bucket. They mean nothing to God. We get the idea, you know, that God is concerned about America. God is concerned about this. God is concerned about this country. God is only concerned about one nation, the nation of Israel. If you want to have the blessings of God in your life or you want to have the blessings of God in your nation, you're going to get those blessings one way, getting into the book that God gave you. Outside of that, the gifts and calling to God or to Israel are out repentance, but they're not for you, not for any other nation. And the only way can God love a man is through the blood of his son dying on the cross. And you know, again, men understand not judgment, getting the right perspective on God's judgment. People talk about, well, I just can't believe that 9-11, we celebrated 9-11 this week. You know, everybody was asking themselves, where was I at on 9-11? And uh, everybody, that's a day that is like December 7th. You weren't alive then, but it's a day of infamy. We all remember it. There's some of you younger ones, it's like the day John F. Kennedy got killed. Older people know exactly. There are certain dates, places, things that happen in your life that you'll never forget where you were or what you were doing. And uh, it's just one of those things. To this day, I was 12 years old in my living room when I found out that the Mickey Mouse Club show was not going to be on the next year. <laughs> Devastated my life. Never been the same since. I had all those little musketeers down. They're all up, grown up and dead now, most of them. I just traveled through life without them, best I could. <laughs> but you know, the real truth of the judgment of God is totally lost today because the real aspect and the perspective of the judgment of God is not God judging nations and we get wham-wham about it or 9-11 or AIDS to the gay community or you know, a tsunami that wipes out a, a, a city or a, a country over there in the west coast of Africa that, that uh, you know, specializes in child pornography and child incest, but you can go there, take a vacation, have all the little kids you want to fornicate with. You know, we, we miss those things. But we look at those and we just say, that couldn't be God's judgment. And we, we send millions and millions and millions of dollars of aid to help these people. And, uh, you know, in, in reality, we had to send them millions of missionaries to tell them why God's judgment's fallen on them. But, you know, the real aspect of judgment of God is God pouring out his wrath and his judgment on his own son for you and for me. Amen. Once you understand that, you don't have a problem with God judging everybody else because God's judgment started with his son. It was God's son that God poured out his wrath on. It was God's son who looked to his heavenly father and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was his son that God turned his back on. It was his son that from that sixth and the ninth hour, God unleashed all the forces of hell and, and, and brought them to his son. And his wrath and his judgment fell on his son for you and for me. Now, when a man rejects that, when a man refuses to admit that, when a man refuses and walks away from the Bible, it's easy for us with understanding to realize you reject the judgment that God put on his son. God says, okay, it's coming on you now. If you reject the payment that somebody went through for you, guess who's going to have to pay it then? You are. Not hard. And you know, and all judgment on earth today will go back to Genesis chapter 3 and man rejecting God's government and the plan that God had because he wanted to have his own plan. Man, from time and eternity, has always had one concept of God that has been his downfall. He thinks he's smarter than God. He thinks he's better than God, and he thinks that his plan will always outdo God's plan. And of course, as um, Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? It's It's not. And the curse that it was brought in with it, really Romans chapter 8, Genesis chapter 3. And yet, you need to know this, and you need to understand this. We talk a lot about God's remnant. Back in all through the Bible, 
and certainly today in the Laodicean church age. You, you people here are part of that remnant. You're not the only remnant, but you're part of that remnant who are the last people on this planet who still believe God knew what he was doing when he wrote a book, who believed that book, who loved that book to the best of your ability. Most of you try to live that book. You're a remnant. You're, you're an oddball. You're the odd man out. Used to be 120 years ago, everybody was like you and all the other ones were the oddball out. Now, nobody's like you and you're the oddball out. But that's the way it goes. And yet, you know, you, I want you to understand that just because we, you are the remnant, we are the remnant, doesn't mean that when God's judgment falls on this country that you're going to get a remnant suit that you wear that keeps you out of all the stuff that's coming. You know, when the, when the terrorists begin to run down the streets and shoot up the malls and kill hundreds and hundreds of people or whatever they're going to do, uh, they won't uh, have a little session before and say, now do not shoot anybody that has a remnant suit on. You'll get killed, shot, caught, and it's just like everybody else. But there's a difference. And the difference is that God's judgment will fall on the world, but God's hand will be on you. So it really doesn't matter. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, I guess taking it all the way to the end, says this is what it really means that whatever state I'm in, wherewith to be content. And you know, there's great examples of that in the Bible. You have Noah. I want you to notice that Noah went through the flood. We always think that Noah was spared the flood. No, he wasn't. He went through the flood. He experienced God's judgment just like everybody else in the world did. But the difference between all the people out there that died and drowned versus Noah was the fact that God had his hand on Noah. And God and Noah built an ark. And that ark was exactly what got him through the flood. And when you go through your trial, we go through our trials, God will have an ark for you. That ark's a picture of a number of things. That ark's a picture of the Jew going through the tribulation period. And God, that ark's a picture of Christ, you being in Christ. You know, there was a hole in the side of that ark, a door. You know, when Christ died on the cross, they put a hole in his side with a spear. You have Joseph. Joseph is the greatest type of Christ anywhere in the Bible. And Joseph is, is sold into slavery by his brethren. He's a type of Christ. He had 12 brothers, or he had, he had brothers, he made the 12, he had 12 brothers total, 12 together, and they rejected him, and they sold him into slavery, threw him into Egypt. That's a picture of what uh, the Bible says, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. It's interesting that they rejected Joseph the first time, but when they came back the second time after the tribulation of a famine, they accepted him, first coming, second coming of Christ. But you know, Joseph, from an inspirational application, is a picture of you and me going to go through some of those tough times. I mean, he's sold into slavery. First of all, he threw down in a pit, and they're going to leave him to die. And of course, uh, then somebody got, uh, you know, thinking of uh, beer money on the way home and said, well, let's pull him out and sell him to the Midianites. So they sold him out of the hole and gave him to the Midianites, and then he went down into Egypt, and somehow he wound up down there in... Uh, uh, in the middle of that thing and uh, the most godless, perverse thing any place on this planet. And, but you know what the difference was? God had his hand on Joseph's life. And here's a situation where he comes down into that mess. Nobody knows him. Nobody's there to help him. He's in the most godless situation you could ever hope to be in. And he winds up because the hand of God is on him, rises to the second position in the kingdom. Everything that happens to Joseph, God turns it around and uses to elevate Joseph, to get him through that disaster of his life. We have the book of Daniel. Daniel's taken into the terrible captivity with Babylon. Bible tells us very clearly in Daniel chapter 1 that the devil's plan was to destroy the king's seed, and Daniel's in the line of Christ. <clears throat> And so Daniel is taken captive, and the devil wants to make sure that he amalgamates him into the way, the life, and the learning of the wickedness of Babylon. So he, the devil orchestrates that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar sees these kids. He sees, and maybe he even understands the prophecies concerning what's going on here, but he works double hard at trying to destroy whatever God was going to do. 
And all through that thing, we see Daniel taking his stand for God in the midst of a time when he could have been killed just like that. All Nebuchadnezzar had to do was just say, hey, I ain't putting up with this. Kill him, and he's dead. But he took a stand for God in the midst of the most terrible time. You know what? He lost his family. Maybe they were killed. I don't know. He never saw them again as far as the Bible's concerned. He lost everything he had. And he was thrust out of his home and his homeland and his life that he knew and his comfort level and put into the most godless situation on this planet that the world has ever seen. Now, you know what? God had his hand on him. And it may be that you and I will go through some really tough times compared to what some of these guys go through. And I'm not saying God's going to spare the captivity, that you're going to get a captivity suit and we don't have to go through it. What I am telling you is simply this. God will have his hand on you. And we look at those things as terrible times. And we look at those things because, let's be honest, we all like our comfort level. Everybody likes living in a going home to your house. If you had to go home to a cardboard box under I-435 bridge someplace, it would not be the... But you know what? I'd rather be there with the hand of God in my life than at home in my nice house without the hand of God in my life. And see, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to, do you and I understand what's coming our way and realize no matter how bad it is, hey, we still got a job to do. Hey, there may be some time when they take this building away from us and we can't ever do this the way we're doing it. So we have to break down in small groups and you'll have to take everything that I've taught you for the last time you've been here and now it'll be where the rubber meets the road and we'll have to carry on that way. It would be interesting to see that if it was against the law and you could go to jail and maybe even lose all your property if you came to church next week, how many really would be here? But in Romania, in East Bloc countries years ago, that's what it, what it was. In Korea, it's that way today. In Russia, it's that way today. I think of Ezekiel. <clears throat> Some great examples. He goes into captivity. He tells us down there that he's sitting down by the river of Sebar in the captives. And he's, you know, everybody's just desolated at the fact that now they've lost everything that they've had. And yet God used him as a mighty prophet during the time of the captivity to preach to the nation of Israel and proclaim God's yes, coming judgment, three different aspects in the book of Ezekiel. I've given it to you before. And I'm telling you, I want you to understand this. Now's the time to build your life to stand for God and be his man or his woman because there's coming a time if Jesus doesn't come and lifts us down here a little bit longer. There's coming a time when all you're going to have is what you have in your relationship with God in your heart and the Bible God gave you. You may lose your wife. You may lose your kids. You may lose your husband. You may lose your friends. You may lose everything. And there's always a great question that you have to ask yourself. It's easy to stand for God when we're all here together today. How will you stand for God if you lose all of that? And along with that, the great principle of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. That most of God's people will never be able to grasp or understand. Simply that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. That no matter what the bad times is, no matter when God's judgment comes, you and I still have a job to do. But we, we'll, the difference will be that we'll understand it because we seek the Lord and God's hand will be on us. And even though we may lose the temporal things of this life, and you know, you may even lose your life. Is that a bad thing if you're going to heaven? Amen. I mean, nobody wants to die, but you know what? If you got to die, I mean, and you get killed in it, I mean, hey, you know what? You're going to heaven. Everybody else is going to hell. That's still a pretty good deal. So in the Bible, the plagues, the disasters, the wars, the pestilence, the diseases, and the judgment of other nations by other nations will always be God at work in his judgment. As I gave you last week, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Back around 1950, and you can still get this on YouTube. I just Google it in there, uh, Billy Graham, handwriting on the wall. There's an old message, I've told you about this a couple of times, where Billy Graham back in that day preached to America, the handwriting on the wall. 
one of the most powerful messages that I've ever heard in my life. He certainly is Billy Graham, the Baptist preacher who still believes the book. And he is tearing it up. I remember, oh, I don't know, but a year ago, I heard a Paul Harvey radio broadcast that was done 35 years ago. Paul Harvey's long dead now. And he predicted if America didn't stay with God and the Word of God, where America would be. And he predicted 35 years ago exactly what's happened in America today. And he told everybody, it'll be God's judgment. I gave you also seven parallels between Israel and the Old Testament and America and the New Testament. How history will always repeat itself. How that it's an incredible, God had a plan for Israel and God has a plan for America. And we set it around one verse last week, verse 5, that says, And the wicked men not understand God's judgment, but we that seek the Lord, we understand all things. All this last week and this week will be the real state of the union. President Trump, a couple of times a year, will get up and everybody, all the TV cameras will get up and he'll talk about the state of the union. And he'll try to paint that picture, good jobs, prosperity, employment level down, you know, we're doing a good job on the illegal aliens, uh, terrorist attacks. We're doing a good job on this. And he'll go up there for an hour and talk about the State of the Union. I can sum it up in five seconds. The State of the Union is a mess in every aspect of it. A total, complete breakdown of society into a complete anarchy. Heading for the amoral just like Europe is today. And no one on earth, folks, let me tell you something. No one on this earth is going to fix it. There isn't any president you're going to elect. There isn't any Congress you're going to put in, any senators you're going to put in, any king, any queen, anywhere across this world that's going to fix the world's problems. It's being set up for the Antichrist to come in and do what he's got to do before the real king shows up. Because the wicked don't understand the judgment of God, therefore they can never repent of their sins. Now, today... Let's look at a couple of more verses as we work down through this chapter. It says here, 28, 6, 7, and 8, Better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son, but he that is companion of riotous men shameth his father. He that by usury and an unjust gain increases his substance, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. Let's uh, go to prayer this morning. And Zeke, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the sermon this morning? Now let's separate these verses out and let's, let's just see what we have today. Verse 6 says, Better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Now, like many verses in the Bible, many passages in the Bible, on the surface they're very straightforward and plain and simple. And, uh, you know, and, uh, but they all carry a great principle. He's simply saying this, you're better off poor with the Bible in your life than you will be with your house filled with boats, cars, more, uh, motorcycles, big houses, and all the possessions that uh, we'll fill our lives with, but never fill it with God, well, or the true riches. I like the word better here. The word better is a good word to study in the Bible. That one little word is really the key to understanding the book of Hebrews, which nobody can get today. Just one little word opens up the whole book, the word better. And he's asking here, or well, I asked the question, what in life will make you better? You know, the greatest single truth in life in the Bible is that money and possessions will not make you any better. Amen. We think it does because for a moment of time, we look good. For a moment of time, we're happy. For a moment of time, that empty hole has been plugged with something that we bought or getting our bank account statement. And for a moment of time, it looks like Everything's going to be okay. There's a commercial that was on TV. I don't see it much anymore. I always thought it was a good one. And it was about the ability to learn another language, which, frankly, I think is an incredible feat. I think that the more multilingual you are, 
the better you are as far as it just broadens you. I think it's a great thing. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's a thing where it, the commercial says, will a new pair of shoes or a new car really make you better? And, of course, the answer to that is not is no. But then they say, but what will make you better is learning another language. And that is true because it expands you. It causes you to move from an, your own culture into another culture. Some of the most miserable people on this earth are people who have everything they want and could buy and sell you and me several times over, make six figures a year, and they're the most miserable people on the planet because, you know, it... it, it Riches don't solve that. Everybody thinks that if you could win the lottery and win $268 million or $500 million, that that would make you happy. And you sit around and daydream about it and think about all the things you could do if you won that. I'm going to tell you something. If God wanted you to win the lottery, he would have you win the lottery. You say, well, God wouldn't have me buy a ticket. No, no, no. He'd have you find one. Blowing down the street, pick it up and say, oh, that's a winning ticket. He didn't care if you buy one as long as you tithe off of it if you do win. <laughs> Nor do I. <laughs> My point is simply this. You know why God won't give us, give you $600 million? Because God can't trust you with it. That's why. And don't get mad about that. You don't see him giving it to me either. <laughs> I mean, it's a thing where riches will obscure your faith. It simply will. Uh, it's simply the difference between count your blessings or count your possessions. Name them one by one. You know, you got to make a little list if you dare. You got to make a list of last week what God did for you and then add to that list what you did for him. See who wins. Did you give more of yourself this week or did you get everything that you got for yourself and gave God nothing? In most cases, we don't give God what's right. We give God what's left after we have all we want ourselves, the scraps of life. And if there ever was a single truth about life taught over and over again in the Bible, it's a simple fact that riches and possession will obscure faith. You know, because riches uh, will build an attitude of entitlement. Uh, there was a kid here that killed somebody in a car wreck a couple of years ago, drunk driving or whatever it was, and he got a good lawyer, and the lawyer defense was that this kid was, which is true, he was a rich kid with rich parents, and the judge and the lawyer used the argument that this kid didn't know any better because his kid, his mom and dad had given him everything all of his life, therefore he wasn't responsible because of all the affluence that he had. That's the way it works today. You know, there's a great example of this found in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 22 in the story of the rich young ruler. And this is where I try to tell you that all these Proverbs back here, as almost everything in the Old Testament, will have a New Testament principle or story to it that illustrates it. And here's one. It says in verse 17, And when he was gone forth unto the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. He's basically saying, So you're, you're, you're saying I'm God? Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear f false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth up. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, Sell whatever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. How many people just like that have I seen all my ministry and all my life? And you know, on the surface, this kid looks like he's got it all together. Which tells me that when you find a place like this, you want to look at some key things because same way in dealing with people because there'll be people who on the outside seem to have it all together. But when you look a little closer, you see that's not true. I mean, first of all, he runs to the Lord. That's pretty good. And then he hits the kneeling position. That's pretty good. He calls him good. He says only good is God is good. So the kid 
looks at him as God. And this kid seems like he has it all together. There's like a lot of God's people. We get in a little trouble here when he says, uh, observe the law, keep the law. The kid says, I've done that from my youth up. I doubt it. There's only one man that ever kept the law. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're getting a little, the ice is getting a little thinner. The trained eye would get you to notice that when this kid's come, he calls him master. He never calls him Lord. I'd pick up on that. And it, everything looked like it's going good right up till you get to the real problem. And Jesus, you know, that's one of the things about the Lord and dealing with you and me. He'll always get to the real issue. He'll play around with these little things and let you see where you're at. And then he'll always catch you with the right cross and nail you right between the eyes. And everything looks pretty good up to verse 26. And then he says, okay, well, then get rid of all that you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. You know, I say this to all of us, and you better learn this lesson. God will always test you with what you really love. He really will. And when you say you love God in the Bible, but you love other things more, he'll test you with that to find out. And that's where this kid's at. His kid is unlike anybody we got in Christianity today. And right up to verse 26, he looks really good. But then when it really comes, push comes to shove. When he says, come, take up thy cross, follow me. Get rid of everything you got. Give it to the poor. Get the true riches. Come and take up your cross and follow me. The Bible says he went away sad. Why? Because just like so many of God's people that won't follow God today, but they want to pretend and give the impression that they do, but they'll never make him Lord. They'll only make him master. You see, if Jesus Christ isn't Lord of your life, then something else will be. And, uh, you know, it's just that simple. And he, he goes away sad because he had great possessions. And the great principle is here, he says, get rid of everything that you got, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, do you want to know why some of God's people won't pick up the cross and follow the Lord today? Uh, it's, a, it's a simple thing. This is not complicated. You know why so many of God's people will not pick up the cross and follow the Lord? You know why? Because they're already carrying too much junk from what they got in their possessions. And they can't get the cross on their back because they got all the other things up there. I mean, it's, it's just that simple. I mean, you, we just get bogged down with everything that we have. And, we, you know, in the Bible, there's two kinds of burden to find. You do know that. There's the burden that men will put on you or you will put on yourself, which is a grievous burden. And then there's the burden that the Lord puts on you that is a easy burden. His yoke is light. And the reason why most of God's people will never pick up the burden of the Lord is because they're so greed with the burden that they've already got on their back. They're already carrying 10,000 pounds of junk. How are they going to add a cross to that? It won't happen. God wants it all. He wants it all because he wants total control of our life. He wants to be Lord. And that's just the way it works. Jesus, in verse 23, he looks around and he says, how hardly, he said to his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And that's a true statement. You know why? Because riches obscure your faith. That's what the verse is saying. I, 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 this particular story is found three times, if I remember right, in the Gospels. My favorite account is in Luke chapter 18, verse 22, uh, in 18, but in verse 22, uh, he, he says, um, you know, he says there, um, uh, you know, that thou lackest one thing. He says it a little differently. And uh, back in, uh, we talked about George Whitfield last week. George Whitfield was a great preacher who never missed an opportunity. And one cold, cold, cold winter in February, he was staying as he was preaching in some people's homes. And he'd preached every night, and he'd preached every night to them, uh, to the church, the congregations, and these kids, these guys never got saved. They were rich folks. Had a very nice house. They thought it was very prestigious to keep the famous, you know, George Whitfield. And the morning that he was getting ready to leave, 
He'd done everything he could to preach to get these people saved. But you never caught George Whitfield unprepared. And the windows were, the glass windows were frosted over with frost on them. And he took his finger and his ring and he wrote on that window, Luke chapter 18, verse 22, yet thou lackest one thing. After he left, the woman came up to make up the bed, saw the window, the Holy Spirit of God smote her in her heart. She called her husband. They both trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. But they had everything, just like most of God's people have everything, yet thou lackest one thing. It's an incredible verse. Verse 7, the next verse. Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son, but he that is a companion of riotous men shameth his father. Now let's remember here that historically, this will be Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Doctrinally, it'll be the nation of Israel who is God's son. Inspirationally, it'll be you and me as God's son in the church age. And we have seen the wise man versus the foolish man all through Proverbs and actually all through the Bible. And here again, this verse in, in Proverbs 28 will be illustrated by a story in the New Testament to drive home the principle. And it's a story that uh, with, uh, we all relate to because we've all have been here at some point in our lives. Some probably maybe are here right now. And it's a story of Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, where it's talked about the story of the prodigal son. And it says, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that followeth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And they wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there rose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hard servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said unto his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this is my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to be married. Well, you know, in these stories here I've told you before, uh, this certain man here is a picture of God the Father. And he has two sons. By this time, it would be the northern tribes Israel and the southern tribe Judah. But it also would be within the nation of Israel, a wise son, and also a foolish son. Historically, it's, it's actually a story of two boys. It's actually a story. Inspirationally, it's a picture of you and me, or maybe you and your children. A couple of things I want you to notice here, and of course, we're looking at Proverbs 28, 7. Uh, he that is a companion of riotous men, in verse 13, it said, he wasted his substance on riotous living. You know, and it got the aspect of the far country. That's a place we've all visited. That's a place in our lives we all hung out for a while, got a room. And there we wasted our substance with riotous living. And it comes to the place where a number of great principles here, one of them is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the far country, I've found in most of God's people's lives is the vacation, favorite vacation spot of most God's people. There's a great principle here that when your money runs out, so do your friends. But verse 17 has always been a great verse because I've always put that in my own life and I've seen it fulfilled in so many other people's lives who was in the far country. It simply says, and when he came to himself. You know what God's people need to do? You need to come to yourself. 
You need to realize or ask yourself where you're really at today. You need to look at yourself and you need to really, uh, you know, uh, and most people will never get that point. The last part of the verse is, says he shameth his father. Uh, he brings shame to Solomon, historically, Rehoboam does. The nation of Israel uh, brings shame to their f- father Israel. It brings shame for you and for me <clears throat> to the cause of Christ when you're a child of God, getting to far country. And yet it brings a shame to your earthly father and mother when you're a boy or a girl who gets out there in the far country and doesn't want to do what needs to be done. Verse 8. He that by usury and unjust gain increases his substance, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. Now, doctrinally, this will be a reference to somebody in the tribulation period using the Jew and making a profit off them. I've told you many, many times in the 20th century, the greatest type of the Antichrist was Adolf Hitler. There's so many parallels between what he did in Nazi Germany and what the Antichrist is going to do. It's incredible. He's the last great picture given to us. And uh, in World War II, they had what they called profiteering. They rounded all the Jews up out of the ghettos, put them in concentrations camp. And then what they did was is that they would rent them out to factories or people that needed labor, slave labor, and uh, the people would pay the Germans like 10 Reichsmarks a day for, and it depended on what your nationality was, how much money that you got, but a Jew was at the bottom of it. But they would rent out 10,000 Jews a day to go work in these factories and get paid 10 Reichsmarks per person for them, the Germans would. And they were making money off the Jews, just like the verse says. The verse is split in two aspects. If you notice, it's separated by a comma. And the first aspect, it says, uh, he that by usury and unjust gain increases his substance. And there's a comma. That'll be somebody using the Jew. Then it says, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. And that'll be somebody helping the Jew. Doctrinally, again, we talked about it last week, this will be the judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 26, the dividing of the sheep and the goats where God actually talks about who helped the Jew and who didn't, who used the Jew and then who pitied the Jew and took care of him, exactly what verse 8 is talking about. Inspirationally, it'll be a reference to anybody uh, who either hurts or uses people uh, or hurts them for their own personal gain. Uh, The example everybody understands would be like a credit card company lends you money, hopes you get into debt over your head so you'll never get out because they're going to charge you 18% interest that you'll never pay off. Or you see it all the time, the title loan places where you need a payday loan, where you go in and you get a loan and 25% interest. And, you know, it's all a ripoff. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's people who uh, will take advantage. Pastors do the same thing. They'll work their crowd to get all the money they can for their own pet projects and never think twice about it. And it talks about people who will take advantage of other people's misfortune. You get in a bind, you need money, and somebody will lend you the money but charge you an exorbitant interest rate because they're going to use you. And we see it all the time. We see it happen all the time. I've known Christian parents, and I'm not fighting it, I don't care. I've known have Christian parents over the years have a lot of money and give and their kids needed money to buy a car or this or that and um, uh, they'll say well we'll give you the money to buy the car you can pay it back to us and we'll charge you a very low interest rate are you kidding me I've known pastors before Jim Lake's the, the classic example when Jim Lake went out to start a church oh by the way for our New Year's Eve Bible conference I have Jim Lake coming and Jerry Bachman coming. Confirmed them this week. It's going to be a great time. And Jim's bringing his son-in-law who is going to preach also. He's a pastor, so we had to have a great time. But when Jim went out to start a church, and he went out after I came out here. He helped me drive out, and then uh, he came out to, uh, went up to start a church later. And <clears throat> he needed a certain amount of money. So his home church, this wasn't some... This was his home church, and I'm even ashamed to tell you this. This was his home church, the Canton Baptist Temple. His home church 
took up an offering for him. And Jim was very well liked. Jim was very well respected. And I forget what he needed, twenty or $30,000. And that one offering, they raised every dime that Jim needed. And then what the pastor said was that we will, we will give you this money as a loan. And then made him pay it back with interest. When the people of the church gave it to him because they wanted to be part of what he was doing. This is what I'm talking about. And you know what? Jim is such a character guy, a good character guy. He never complained. You know what he did? He paid back every dime of it. Just the way that that's the way Jim is. Me, I had to get on the phone and called everybody and overthrown the church and stayed there. That's the difference between his character and me just being a character. The last part of the verse, he shall gather it for him. Most certainly a reference to the judgment seat of Christ and our millennial inheritance. God simply, as we do the work, God gathering for you and for me, our increase, our rewards, as you we work to take care of God's people in two formats. First of all, the nation of Israel, that'll be the judgment of the nation, the tribulation, but for you and for me, the people that God gives us right now, do you... Do you help them or do you use them? Do you teach them and give them what you give them with a pure motive or do you have an ulterior motive? You know, the rapture and the second coming is likened to a harvest. And right now we do the work, but then God gives and gathers the increase for us. We sing the song, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, the sheaves working in the fields. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thing where he's saying, I preached the truth to them. Apollos prayed for them, but God gave the increase and he ultimately gathered the harvest for us. And, and that brings up a tremendous concept. You know, there's three aspects to soul winning. There's a sowing, there's a watering, and there's a reaping. Most people, you know, I grew up in an era where the guys were making millions of dollars off of their books and holding conferences on soul winning and putting people under a guilt trip saying that, you know, I'm a, I, I win every, of every five people I talk to, I win them three of them to Christ. And he'd put that on them. And he'd say, you ought to be winning men and women to Christ. If you go through a day and you don't win somebody to Christ, there's something wrong with you. And, of course, all this was the verse that we're talking about, using it to, to, to put people on a grill tip so you can get them to buy your books and buy your tapes. The Bible teaches that there's three aspects to soul winning. You sow the Word of God. You pray for that person. And then that person gets saved at some point in a perfect world. But the thing that you've got to realize that you may sow and you may water, but somebody else may reap. And then you may reap what somebody else has sowed and watered. And the key is to have understanding to know when you should sow, stop sowing, always you water, but when you shouldn't go any farther in your reaping. You come to the place where you beat people up to get saved. So they get saved to get you off their back. I had a guy one time, and we used to go door to door, and he was one of these kind of great soul winning guy, or he thought he was, and he used to brag about how many people won to Christ, and so I went one time, I just wanted to see his technique. We got into a house, and the guy didn't want to believe, didn't want to come to church or whatever, and uh, uh, he said, you need to get saved. The guy says, no, I don't want to get saved, and he went on and on and on, and the guy says, I'll tell you what. I said, we're going to leave right now, but he said, would you do me a favor? And the guy said, sure, what is it? He says, but you just, uh, you pray for us. Just pray this prayer. And so he, he gave him the sinner's prayer, and the guy prayed it. And then the guy said, I got bad news for you. You just got saved. <laughs> That's the kind of people he, he claimed he won to Christ. That guy didn't get saved. In fact, he ran us out of the house. <laughs> but that's the mindset. And there will be times when all God wants you to do is sow. And he got Somebody else is going to reap. The example of that is the Ethiopian eunuch. Somebody sowed the gospel, or the uh, yeah, the gospel of Isaiah to him, fifty-three. But Philip got the reaping. But somebody was praying for him, 
And when you have understanding and you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God, you know when you were to sow, when you were to water, and when you were to reap. And you know that when you start to talk to somebody, the Holy Spirit of God says, okay, that's enough, let's go. You gave them all I wanted you to give them. So you sowed it, but God's going to have somebody else reap it. We get the idea that because God, this person's in my life, that my job is to win him to Christ, and I'm not going to stop that he gets saved. You're out of your mind. That is not a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit of God. Some people God wants you to sow. Some people God wants you to pray for. And some people God wants you to reap. And your relationship with the Holy Spirit of God tells you which one to do when. And, and it's a great concept. We do the work, but God gathers the increase for us. Hey, the longer I'm in the ministry, in a couple more years, it'll be 50 years. The longer I'm in the ministry, the longer I do this work, the more I realize that I simply do my job, put out the truth, and allow God to do his job. That's to gather the increase. And so many of God's people, so many of pastors. You know, Jesus said one time, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me in John chapter 12. The problem with preachers today is that they're too busy lifting themselves up. Jesus never gets lifted up. Too many people today try to do God's work and never do theirs. You get into the ministry and get into it like many and many of you have, you're going to learn that two key words are vital, patience and long-suffering. And in ministry, people never, uh, you never force anything on somebody. You let God do it. You allow God to show them what the truth is and what they need. Your job is just to give it to them. Your job is not to convince them of it. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, he may ask you questions and you show him what the Word of God is. End of the day, you're not going to convince him of anything. And if you do and the Holy Spirit didn't, you're in the wrong pew. The results always belong to God in his time frame, not ours. And you want to remember this. Time spent waiting on God is never time spent wasted. You let God do it his way. These three verses will show us three simple great truths that need to be applied in each of our lives. Number one, verse six, going back to it, you're better off with the riches of God than you are the riches of this world because they will not satisfy you. They'll leave you broken, busted, and empty. And at the end of your life, you'll have nothing to show for it. The Bible calls it bag with holes. You put everything into a bag and at the end of your life, you realize there was a hole in the bottom and it all fell out. Verse seven, To have the true riches, you must separate yourself from some things in this life. Amen. There can be no sanctification in your life without separation in your life. For you to have everything that God wants you to have, there's some things that are just simply going to have to go. It's just that simple. And as a child of God, verse 8, you have to give to people, not take from them for your own personal gain. We live in a day and age of Christianity where pastors teach Bible courses, have classes, have a paid staff counselor on the staff, and if you want to go take a class, you've got to pay for it. If you want to go see the psychologist, Christian psychologist, it costs you something. If you want to use a building because you're a room in a building because you're going to get married or your person died in your family, you've got, you've got to pay for it. It's just like that churches have lost their minds today. Somehow it all got backwards. We do not exist so you can serve me. We exist that we can serve you. This is your building. You pay for it. It's like you buying a car and, you know, you gotta, you're paying, a, paying off on the car and then I keep charging you every time you drive it. It's your car. This is your building. And you can use it, you can have it, and how do I charge you for anything I teach you, no matter what it may be, and yet it's incredible stuff, not because I'm teaching it, well, kind of, but it's incredible stuff, and it's stuff that will change your whole life, but you know what? How do I charge you for something that God gave me free? If that isn't crooks, I don't know what is. Let me tell you something, all the criminals are not in the penitentiary, I guarantee you. Rudyard Kipling was an English writer around the turn of the century. He was a journalist, he was an author, he wrote poems, and he did short stories. The one that I read that he did was called 
the processional, which was a short poem uh, dedicated to Queen Victoria and her diamond jubilee of reigning in 1897. He spent years with the British expeditionary forces overseas and was a great wise man and really knew a lot of things. And I kind of think he probably was a Christian, though I never proved that. He spoke to the Oxford body of graduates in uh, around the turn of the century. And I, I read it years and years and years ago, and, I, and I'll keep things like that. You know, I've read, I've, I've just blitzed books for years, you know, and try to glean everything I can. And when I found something that really was above the ordinary, I always wrote it down and always kept it. And his farewell address to the student body of Oxford University He said, it was one of the greatest things I ever heard, and I wrote it in my Bible years ago. And as he got up there and stood in the podium and the place was filled with graduates from Oxford University, which you had to have a lot of money to go to Oxford. You got to have a lot of money now. He said, I see you young gentlemen here today, and by your dress, by your mannerisms, by your conversation, and certainly by your attitude, It's obvious to me that you have been raised in well-to-do families where all of life's necessities have been taken care of for you and you want for nothing today and you live a life of wealth and you have taken great pains to impress the right people and have laid back enough wealth to buy your way through most of your life. But he said, but I would like to tell you something today and leave you with one thought. Someday after you leave here, somewhere down the pathway of your life, you will come across a man somewhere to whom all that you have today will mean absolutely nothing. And when you do, you will then realize how poor you really are. And for me, when I looked that thing and read that, you know what that means? That's the judgment seat of Christ for us. A day when we're going to stand there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 14, and we think that of everything that we had, and they were going to meet a man who gave up everything. And the reality of that day is going to be for us who think we have everything and have trusted in everything we have, our jobs, our riches, our money, that we do everything in life to get better, more money, more riches than this. In that day, you will find out just how poor you really were. Keeping our perspective to the life we need to live for him realizing that we'll never bear his cross with all the junk that we've got on our backs that we hold so precious and dear. Christ not just being our master, but being our Lord. Because in our life, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And we just go through the motions over and over and over again. And we're never happy, we're never fulfilled, and we build around us all the things that we think makes us happy. And when we get to that final place where we meet a man who was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich, you'll see how poor you really were in this life. Well, let's hold up there.